We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. And they're already, they're already firing. You're hearing, you're hearing them go all the time. So clearly there's a ground offensive on the foot. Like, yeah, you can just, on the march, you can see it. There's soldiers everywhere. It's, it's a war zone. It's, it's literally a war zone. On the other hand, they can't maintain a 400,000 person mobilization in a country of at most 9 million people forever. You just cannot. There's no good answers, right? I think that, the, the, now I wouldn't say bloodless exactly, the desire for vengeance was maybe weaned off a little bit. And it's like the thought that they're going to like level Gaza top to bottom is just not going to happen. But obviously the, just today, Biden tweeted about the two-state solution, which I, I find funny, right? The two-state solution is still this sort of like refrain in the Western world. Like, oh yeah, we're going to have a two-state solution. Like literally, if like, the, you know, if the fence has so much as the gap, right? You're going to have elements of that society emerge who will literally engage in the most barbaric violence known to man, right? Because clearly nobody would accept that. This, this is a two-state solution. There's two states. And if you eliminate a segment of fence, you get total horrors. There, there you go. I think the West just doesn't understand what it means to be at the liberal fringes of the liberal, of the, fringe, the violent fringes of the liberal order and what that actually means. Because they don't know. They, they live in this video game called Twitter in which all their political struggles are virtual and you get canceled rather than shot and killed. And they think that's real somehow. And the video game is real. And they don't, they don't know what it is to actually be inside. Right. I mean, that's how I tweeted, right? You're dealing with the people who would annihilate another people if they could, but they can't. And you've got that other people who could annihilate that first people, but they don't. <laughs> and that, that in fact is the problem. Because if, we if, if, if Israel is all that it's being cracked up to be by these Western left, they would have annihilated the Palestinians. But they don't. Actually, they don't. Because they don't want to. That's the reality of it. Hey, what's up, man? Yo. Yo, yo, yo. Wow, the man of the hour. Yeah. <laughs> where where, uh, where are you right now? Oh, Tel Aviv, off Bogreshos and Ben Yehuda in the nice uh, part of uh, Tel Aviv. Wow, relatively nice. Part and so 40 minutes away, that, t- tell us where you were today. Like, uh, walk us through what you did. Oh, yeah. So today I went to southern Israel, uh, up close to the Gaza border, which is a complete fucking war zone, as it turns out. A little more dangerous than I thought it would be. A little, a little more spicy than I thought I was getting into. Um, it turns out Israelis are crazy and they will have a full on war interleaved with like civilian areas. Again, all of it like 35, 40 minutes from, from Tel Aviv. And, uh, Given that we're living in capital H history, in capital H history, your tribe would go to war against the next tribe after the last genocide. And so, like, you're seeing the tribe gear up. And, uh, yeah, we're driving around. Um, so, so for our American audience who, you know, whose notion of world geography comes from playing Risk when they were 12, um, we have to specify that Israel is a Levantine country. And there's this little thing called the Gaza Strip. That's approximately 42 kilometers long. It's actually quite long. It's, it's as long as the distance from the top of Gaza is to Tel Aviv. Um, and I don't know, five, six kilometers wide, fairly narrow. Um, but it's in a part of Israel that is historically kind of desert, but then there's a lot of, uh, you seem the, the, the kibbutz, these sort of like uh, agricultural collectives, which by the way, are typically occupied by lefty hippies. So if you're like a nice, crunchy, lefty hippie family, instead of moving to Portland, which is what you do in the United States, in Israel, you move to a kibbutz in uh, South Israel, and uh, these these kibbutzim, you know, have an economy. The the one I went to, the one that got massacred, the uh, Berry, in which one in four people were either murdered or kidnapped. Very sad place now, but they have a huge print shop, one of the biggest print shops in Israel that prints everything from license plates to, to everything, or license uh, driver's licenses to everything else. Um, and so, yeah, that's where I was, and um, it's weird because it's it's two weeks after almost to the day after the attack. But, you know, a lot of it, some of it has been cleaned away, some of it hasn't. There's still cars around with, like, bullet holes and stuff. You still see bloodstains and stuff on the street. Um, and then there's a war going on. The idea is mobilized. You drive around and you make the wrong left turn because there's, like, a, there's a, you know, there's a checkpoint and they won't let you go through, even with a press pass. And so you make a left into the thing and you freak out the kibbutz uh, security force, which by the way is behind these piled concrete bags that you didn't quite see, and suddenly you've got like at least eight ARs trained on you. 
and you're all like signaling madly, like, no, 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 everyone relax. And you get out and you start chit-chatting and they turn friendly very quickly as Israelis do. Um, and you offer them cigarettes to kind of calm the situation. They're like, no, 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 we want pot. And I'm like, sorry, I didn't bring any. And you kind of laugh. <laughs> and then you look to your right and there's like at least a platoon, if not two platoons of Merkava tanks who have, who have staged there. You didn't quite see them when you made the turnoff, but they're kind of hidden behind the trees. And there they are. And there's all the Merkava tankers are outside because it's hot. And they're just sitting there, right? It's like, oh, fuck. Interesting. Um, and they're much bigger, by the way, than in person than you kind of see in the picture. <laughs> they're like, they're big. Um, and so yeah, that's what it is, driving around in the chaos. And then you get the constant rocket alarms. You hear artillery going on. It sounds like a thunderstorm going all the time. And then if you're an idiot like we were, so we, um, sorry, I'm kind of rambling here, but if you drove up, we drove past the concert event, the famous place with the, 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 the desert conference thing where they, so many people were killed and kidnapped. And we just accidentally drove past it. Um, by the way, and we're navigating without GPS. Well, I don't know how, but the IDF manages to jam the GPS. After your phone's GPS doesn't work throughout most of this stuff <laughs> intentionally. Um, and so we're like, oh my God, this looks exactly like uh, the, the concert venue saying. So we pulled over and they've cleared up the cars and the bodies and everything, of course, but you can still see the remains of like the tents and all the garbage and shit still left there. And so we're like looking around and kind of keeping a distance, taking a photo, and then suddenly, boom! And you didn't see it, but you were 100 meters away from an, art <laughs> an artillery battery that was in the trees. Probably one of the 155 millimeter big self-propelled cannons that society pulled that off a show. And you're all like, oh my God, what the fuck happened? And then you're like, okay, let's keep on going. <laughs> you keep on going. Um, so that, that was kind of the vibe. And there's a human touch too, right? So like all, all of Israel, right? Like literally six months ago, there were any, I mean, I did a piece for Tablet. I was here for business as I sort of am now, by the way. Everyone thinks that I'm like LARPing or Semingway, but I, we have reasons to be in Israel for tech reasons too. But in any case, obviously it's partially due to the war. Um, and um, everyone was at each other's throats for this whole judicial reform thing that was going on, right? And what's fascinating is a lot of the groups that actually mobilized and organized to be against the judicial reform, which is a whole thing that we had another episode on that's not worth repeating here, they're like within a second of the attacks happening, pivoted to mobilizing for the war efforts, right? Which is interesting. And so uh, Brothers in Arms, there's a whole tech group, all these groups that were basically mobilizing against the, the BB judicial reform. So I'm like, oh my God, it's wartime, it's the Blitz. Everyone go that way. And so... Um, Sort of the, the biggest convention center in Tel Aviv, what they call the Expo Center, which is kind of like the Moscone Center in San Francisco, to light a very, <laughs> a very local example, has been completely taken over by these NGOs. And so they have like a WeWork co-working startup thing, and it's totally taken over by people organizing relief efforts for everybody, you know, reservists, orphans, right? A lot of the families that are killed, the you know, entire family was killed, and you've got two two-year-old twins. Well, who takes care of them? They have no family left. They've literally murdered the entire family except the kids who survived in the safe room or whatever. And you deal with right? um, getting food down there, et cetera. So, I, so there was the, the sort of startup area. And the weird thing is that there's so much tech talent in, in, in Israel that you've got like somebody who's like CMO for like a unicorn startup or like a unicorn company who's like running comms for one of these organizations. <laughs> this woman who has like an EVP title is just like the woman who greets you at the thing and like is walking you through it. And you like LinkedIn stalker. And it's like, oh, you're kind of an important executive and you're like managing this whole thing because all of society is mobilized. For this. So that's like the startup side. And there's another part where they, uh, they reminded me of Ukraine, actually, when I was in Ukraine on the border. Uh, they had like a whole warehouse area in the parking lot where everyone donates all sorts of things. And it's like baby stuff, you know, male, female, you know, you know warm clothing. Yeah, it's a desert. Not it gets cold. So the troops deploy and it gets cold. Uh, and then they've taken over the expo hall and they have a bunch of uh, AI scientists and computer guys hacking on how do we actually find the hostages? So they ingest literally all the videos from all the various streams, a lot of the Palestinian program channels and whatnot. And try to identify the faces and see where they are and geotype and all that stuff. Kind of hush hush about it as they should be. Um, so yeah, there's just a lot, there's a lot kind of going on, right? The whole society is mobilized in a, in a very serious way, whether it be in Tel Aviv, which again is like Miami with an actual tech scene, or whether it be in the southern part of Israel, which is maybe the vision you're having of Israel of, you know, the kibbutz and the, the agricultural part and the green, whatever, and the sort of desert, like it looks very sort of Israeli. And even here where it's not, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's total war in the Klaus-Wittian sense uh, happening in the 21st century. Antonio, do you have any read from talking to people on the ground wh why things were taking so long, right? Because it, it felt like yeah. there was a directly after 10-7 massive amount of mobilization, yeah. you know, kind of yep. getting a handle on, on things from the terrorist attack. But now we're, we're two weeks in, right? Yeah, no, and it's still what, what's I mean, the I mean, what's the delay? 
Yeah, Israel is mostly, I mean, maybe people don't realize it. Their active duty service, I forget the exact number, but the active duty is like less than 100K. You know, Israel is one of the world's largest top 10 army, but it's because they have a mass conscription and so they can come up with almost half a million soldiers, but 400,000 of them are all, are literally reservists. And so for, if you're an able-bodied male or female, for that matter, you will serve until your 30s or 40s. That is just the cost of, of Israeli citizenship. And so the entire society is mobilized. You see a lot more soldiers in Tel Aviv where typically you don't see them. And then in Jerusalem, everything's just crawling with reservists. And uh, you can tell the reservists are not necessarily the elite troops, right? It's just a guy in a military uniform, lost in carrying a rifle or whatever. But it's like a guy, right? Like, two, you know, two days before he was like working at a start doing whatever job he had. And now he is. So he's part of the, uh, the Israeli military machine. And that has an, an economic cost, right? Like I, I know Startup Funder, we have some of our business partners, you know, People just have to go. They, they just, I get called up. Sorry, I, I got to go. Um, so I had Shabbat dinner on, on Friday with one of the business partners and um, his um, nephew, his nieces and nephews were in 8200 and they had to leave the Shabbat meal to go report for a Shabbat evening to, uh, to go, you know, to go work at 8200 is like the signals intelligence part of Israel, out of which a lot of startups come, by the way, because... Um, uh, Israel's fascinating. It's this total fusion. I mean, it's not, it's not obviously a fascist society, but if you imagine the fascist society with the union between, you know, industry and academia and the military and all that happening, that, that's kind of how it works right, in, in Israel. And so, uh, yeah, you have to go do that. But yeah, so why is it taking so long? Um, yeah, there's various, uh, depends how much you like or dislike Bibi, <laughs> but you're very serious. One is he's a coward who doesn't want to go to war, which, well, t- take it for what you will. The other is that Biden's tw- twisting his arm to get more hostages released. Uh, as yet, only two, as far as I know, have been released. Um, yeah, the views of the U.S. are also kind of mixed. On the one hand, very positive towards Biden, making a very strong statement and, you know, carting out two different aircraft carriers and the uh, whatever the ships are in the Red Sea, which, as far as I know, is the first time a naval ship has actually actively defended Israel. They shot down rockets going towards Israel from Yemen. Um, so, yeah, no, it's just, it's, people are kind of waiting. It is strange. On the other hand, I don't know, I talked to... Um, the father of the guy that I know who's old school IDF guy, and he's like, yeah, we should wait. It should be, it should be a long siege. It's a planet. You know, there's all these tunnels. There's hundreds, I mean, hundreds, dozens of kilometers of tunnels underneath Gaza City and Gaza where Hamas hides stuff. And so and no one actually knows or has mapped it out as far as we know. And so actually taking that on, right? Like you're walking into a massive trap that could cost thousands, if not tens of thousands of Israeli lives. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful. Their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com to get started. And, and maybe one thing, uh, and I know we, we chatted in this group chat about this, but, you know, the Israelis had a, a soldier, what, for five years who, who Hamas had kidnapped, and they traded something on the order of a thousand uh, uh, Hamas or Palestinian prisoners for one IDF soldier. And now we're talking about 200 hostages. So I, I, like if, if they were willing to do that much before for one person, I, it just the, the hostage situation to me just seems um, it's horrific. And, and I just it, it doesn't feel like there's going to be a good outcome there. And like I, I, I I'd be curious, like what what people's read on the street, given that, the, you know, there are 200 people who are who are, and, and babies and old people and yeah, I know. The, so the, the person I'm referring to, is, his name is, for those who want to Google it, uh, Gilad Salit. And he was actually stationed close to Gaza, actually. And he was kidnapped. And it was like this nationwide ordeal for like four or five years, I think, in which the whole effort was to get him back. 
And it gives you an idea. I think there's something, I mean, I just kind of got to this party, so to speak, there's something deeply encrusted in like either the Jewish or the Israeli mind where not leaving hostages behind, leaving somebody behind is this massively, you know, dollarous thing because everyone, there's a level of cultural empathy here because everyone's child serves, right? Every mother who sees the Galit, you know, where Gilad Shalit story imagines their son in that situation kind of, in a way that I think most Americans don't understand, right? And so they're very sensitive to the hostage situation. So you're exactly right. Now, but now it's that times 200, right? And the last time I looked up, I think um, Israel has something like, I think, I think it's four or 5,000 Palestinian prisoners. There's only so much they can trade, right? So they can't maintain the Shalit ratio to the tune of 200. It's really impossible. Um, so yeah, I think the, I mean, obviously the, the murders and the rapes and all the rest of it was, was horrendous, something beyond the pale of anything that Israel's faced before. But then the, the hostage thing is also beyond the pale. And uh, I, I haven't heard any sort of coding explanation for how to handle it. Um, driving here on the way back, we passed um, close to Sorona Market, which is this sort of Chelsea market type thing in Tel Aviv, there's a gathering point where the family of the hostages show up and just kind of express their frustration. Why isn't the government moving faster, et cetera? Like, what else do you do? You have a, you have a child who's a hostage. You feel super frustrated. You can't do anything. So you go and you protest. And uh, the taxi driver, I'm sure you ask about it. The taxi driver speculated like, oh, this group's only going to get bigger and bigger as this goes on longer and longer. And very possibly so. Because, um, again, imagine your child's, you don't even know if your child's alive. All you know is that they didn't find the body. And by the way, they're still finding the bodies. So we went to, to Barry, which is uh, Bethy. It has the apostrophe in it, which is one of the one of the kibbutz that was just annihilated, right? Like literally a quarter of the people were either murdered or, or kidnapped. And um, we went there, and the uh, again, there's, there's so many eccentricities in Israeli society. It's hard to convey it. Americans wouldn't understand it. So um, there's one thing in the Jewish, in Judaism in which um, in machinery customs you have to bury the entire body. And I, again, obviously not, not a rabbi here. I can't go out length as to why, but like catching every last part of the body. And burying it is a critical. It's almost like when you read in the Iliad, the Greeks fighting over the dead body of whoever, because the funerary customs are so critical to society, they would literally risk their lives to get the dead body back. I mean, it's not quite what's going on here, but it's kind of the same thing, where the funerary custom is super important. So there's a whole core of people called Zeka, and it's, you know, Orthodox Jews with, you know, the Beot, like Orthodox Jews, right, who all volunteer. And what they do is when they go to the site of massacres and suicide bombs, when literally people have been detonated and splattered. And I saw some of the splats. I, you know, we show you photos of, we went into one of the bunkers and it was just, it was riddled with bullets and there was still like splash brown dried blood on the wall, right? Like that level of stuff. And you can still see it wandering our car that was just shot through and it was just caked in blood and it reeked and just covered in flies, even now, two weeks later. And so these are the guys who go out and literally with like, it sounds like, a, you know, it sounds like I'm being gallows humor, but it's not like literally with like, you know, like tweezers and stuff, like every last little bone fragment to try to bury the entire body. And uh, we went to, to Bethy, which, you know, all the kibbutznik, or kibbutz, uh, the have, have left, but the, uh, the Zaka people were still there. So they're still digging up bodies, right? So they're still trying to figure out where the bodies are and who's actually dead. So that, you know, so you don't know actually who's missing. It's kind of like Hamas, I assume, since the main list, you just know that there's so many missing and so many bodies have been identified. And the Delta, you assume is kidnapped, right? Like what else is there to assume? And so that's, we're still at that point, right? You're still in one of the biggest, in one of the big kibbutz and they're still, you know, digging up remains and trying to figure out who's dead and who's not. What, what's going to happen? Or like, wh wh what is your prediction of like, what is the scale and scope of Israel's response going to be? And then the counter response to that? You know, you know I wish I was one of these geopolitical strategists who could sit here and very confidently predict the future of, of Middle Eastern uh, geopolitics. I, I don't know. It's, it's clear that the state is gearing for war. Like we saw dug in positions with self-propelled artillery like dug in clearly gps coordinates like this is where this is where we're shelling gaza city from and they're already they're already firing you're hearing you're hearing them go all the time um so clearly there's a ground offensive on the foot like yeah you could just on the march you can see it there's soldiers everywhere it's, it's a war zone it's, it's literally a war zone so clearly something is going on on the other hand they can't maintain a four hundred thousand person mobilization in a country of at most 9 million people forever. You just cannot. And so something needs to give. And it's, I don't know. Um, there's no good answers, right? I think that, the, the, now I wouldn't say bloodlust exactly, but the desire for vengeance was maybe weaned off a little bit. And it's like the thought that they're going to like level Gaza top to bottom is just not going to happen. Um, but obviously, the, just today, Biden tweeted about the two-state solution, which I, I find funny, right? The two-state solution is still this sort of like refrain in the Western world. Like, oh yeah, we're going to have a two-state solution. Like, 
literally, if like the, you know, if the fence has so much as the gap, right, you're going to have elements of that society emerge who will literally engage in the most barbaric violence known to man, right? You, 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 what's the, what's the two state situation here you're talking about? Because clearly nobody would accept that. This, this is a two state solution. There's two states. And if you eliminate a segment of fence, you get total horrors. There, there you go. <laughs> right. But I, I don't know. I think, yeah, this is, this is one of these macro takes, but you know, MOZ is known for it, but it's like, I think the West just doesn't understand what it means to be at the liberal fringes of the liberal, of the, fringe, the violent fringes of the liberal order and what that actually means. Because they don't know. They, they live in this video game called Twitter in which all their political struggles are virtual and you get canceled rather than shot and killed. And they think that's real somehow. And the video game is real. And they don't, they don't know what it is to actually be inside. Real. <laughs> real war. Real strife. Real violence. Not words or violence. Actual violence, right? And so, like, yeah, it's just, it's something I think that it's very difficult for Westerners to understand that, uh, you, you know, you drive 40 minutes from like, I literally had like craft beer and like hipster and tattooed servers, like the whole, the whole liberal catastrophe you would have in San Francisco. And literally in that same bar, actually, uh, yesterday, you hear an alarm, everyone like rushes to the basement and like hangs out and then boom, 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 boom. And you go back to the computer, right? Like, I don't think the, the Western mind truly understands that level of like, yeah, we're at the fringes of this thing. And if we don't struggle, our, our order, our society will, will collapse or be violently assaulted. Yeah, I don't think people in the West think that way anymore. And Antonio, one thing, um, you know, you, you pointed out that there's a bunch of information that's being shared, telegram groups, and, and, and kind of yeah. dark social is the wrong term in the sense that it, it has like a negative connotation, but it's almost like stuff that's almost too real to be shown on Twitter or, or in mainstream media, of course. And I, I'm curious because it feels like in some ways, what, so I, I've, I've seen some of that stuff that's coming direct and, and there's always a little part of my mind is like, okay, how much of this is being manipulated or whatever. But I think it's very hard to um, see that and then actually see that the discourse is, it feels very surface level. Like we're getting the like G rated version or the PG 13 version of what happened in Israel versus when you actually see some of these these clips. And I, and I actually think the IDF and, and Israel itself is actually trying to push this on social media to the degree yep. that it's allowed in, in the, on the platforms are pushing it out. But I, I'm curious, like, it feels like that should be more aggressively showcased in terms of just like how bad the atrocities were. Yep. Because I think otherwise it, it, it gets kind of like business as usual, almost. It's like, oh, just another terrorist. Like, no, 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 this was as brutal 10 out of 10 brutal as it gets outside of maybe you know gassing people in in you know chambers in the holocaust like this is as as big of an atrocity as it gets yeah i mean the holocaust example and i know it's like there's like a joke among jews is like how fast two jews to like do you converge on like the holocaust that's like a topic right and i agree it can be kind of overused but i think what's different here you hear people say it's like this is the yom kippur like 9-11 is a bad metaphor because it's the relative impact of the united states 9 11 was, I mean, it's, it was a big deal, but it, relatively speaking, it was small. And every Israeli you meet knows someone who died or got kidnapped. Like literally everybody I've met. Oh yeah. Um, my kids go to school with the son of the guy whose wife got kidnapped. Or, you know, oh yeah, I work with the guy whose sister got killed at that concert thing. Like everybody is like one or two hops at most from somebody who, which is just not the case. I didn't know anybody who died that way. As tragic as it was. It was not that level of like national, oh, everybody had somebody die. Um, where was I going with that? Um, yeah, so I think the feeling of vulnerability, right? Like in the Yom Kippur, people will say, it's funny, the guy I interviewed today was a veteran of the Yom Kippur. He's the guy who runs the fact, the, the printing, fa the press inside the women of the books. He's like, yeah, I fought in the Yom Kippur, but it was different. It was, it was, it was, you know, male soldier to male soldier. It wasn't men raping and killing women and children. It wasn't civilians, right? Scenes of Jews getting machine gunned in their own homes brings up visions of the Nazi action in the ghettos and Schindler's List. <laughs> like that's the vision that it brings up. That level of vulnerability and weakness that Israel was meant to be, you know, a bulwark against. And the fact that Israel would or that Jews would be in that situation, that Israelis on their own land would be in the situation again is what's so deeply shocking about it. It's not a soldier dying at the front, which is of course tragic. This this is very different. I mean, this is I mean the stories that come out of some of these pathologists and the uh, you know, the people, again, the Zaka people who clean up the, literally the human remains of people like literally tied together with wire, you know, the wife raped, the, the, the father killed, the kid like alive in the next room, saved miraculously. Like 
things like that. People burned alive, like literally children in the head. Like these sort of things are just horrors beyond comprehension, right? And again, it's it's very different than wartime casualties, which to some degree Israel always has. And so I, I think that's why it's, it's such an affront to people. Um, and if you, if you go talk to people, the weird thing is you might ask, like, why the hell were they living out there so close to Gaza? Like, if you go look at Google Maps, like, literally the fields of these, of the kibbutz goes up to, like, literally the wire. Like, how could they trust it so much? And I, if you talk to them, it's like, there's this, well, there was this compact with the government. They would protect us. And so, yes, on, on that side, there's badness and whatever, but we're, we're here, and it's different, and the, and the government will protect us. And it's, um, again, I think in the Western mind, we're not used to living to, like, literally an, a sworn enemy who, in this very ethnic, genocidal way, wants to destroy you. But in, in Israel, it's more common. I mean, look, you go to Jerusalem and you cross East Jerusalem and you drive through an Arab village and you're kind of nervous, but then you go back to this and that and things are a lot closer. Um, and you, you, you kind of see the enemy or the other in, in the face in a way here that you don't, I think, in the West. Um, but I guess that, that's, that's the feeling of vulnerability, the feeling of Jews killed on their own soil, not in wartime, literally women and children, old people, just total horrors visited on, on the Israeli populace. And it's hit people pretty hard, right? I mean, it's... Um, Again, this is what Israel was meant to prevent. And it, it didn't it didn't prevent it. Right. Going back to like what could happen, um, you mentioned Israel's, you know, bracing for war. Um, you know, it's it's going to try to destroy Hamas. Is it going to ha- are we gonna have a massive refugee sort of situation? Like are two million people going to have to get moved or a big chunk of them? Does Israel like take o- like annex you know more properly or for- like what is the end state for this? Or, you know, two years from now, where are we? I don't know. Nobody knows. No, I, I, I asked everybody that question. Nobody has any sort of cogent answer. And then we, in fact, admit, I, I, it's really good opinions about lots of things. But about this, there's something like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, what is going to happen? Because none of the solutions look amazing. Like, no, they're not going to push out 2 million Palestinians. The, the Egyptians don't want them, right? The reality is that no Arab country will accept them as refugees. Because every country they've been ad- admitted into, they've caused a civil war, whether it be Lebanon or Jordan. The, the Black September terrorists were named after basically a civil war that Palestinians threw against the Jordanians, in which they were massacred. Right? And then they had to decamp to Lebanon, right? Like nobody, I mean, for, for all that the Arab, you know, that the Middle East or the Arab world claims to support the Palestinian cause, nobody actually wants to accept Palestinian refugees. And so that, that's just not going to happen, right? Um, and yeah, they're pro Palestinian when it's the Israeli's problem, not, not when right, it's right, their right. problem. Right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, occupation. I mean, Why isn't annexation going to happen? What would you annex? <laughs> you know, a pile of concrete rebar that's been blown to pieces. What, what are you annexing exactly? I mean, that's, that's the difference between the West Bank and, and Gaza. Like Gaza, I mean, West, the West Bank is some historical in in the mind of those who do want to annex it, and, and the, there is a small part of Israeli society for which that's true. You know, the the, the West Bank is the, the the tomb of the patriarchs are there. It's parts of the of you know, it's part of the promised land you're described in the Bible. That's not true of the Gaza Strip, right? The Gaza Strip is way off in left field, literally. And uh, there's no particular desire to annex it. But, and, and, you know, it's funny, like, few people actually know Israeli history. Two times ago that I was in Israel was actually when Israel pulled out of Gaza. So Israel used to occupy, or at least partially occupy, parts of Gaza. There were settlements, actually, in Gaza. Last time I was here, Ariel Sharon was PM, you know, Ariel Sharon, you know, right wing, kind of a hard ass. He, uh, he pulled Israel out of Gaza, which was very controversial. And he had, he literally forcibly, yet, like, pulled the settlers, screaming and yelling, out of their settlements. And just gave everything on the strip. That's it. And then I think a year or two later, they had an election and they voted Hamas in the bar. Right. So, it, you know, Gaza's not been occupied for almost 20 years. Right. Um, and yet here we are. So I, I know they don't want to, they don't want to occupy it <laughs> realistically. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the most, like, if I was betting on scenarios, the only thing that sounds vaguely realistic is that they're going to have, you know, the Palestinian Authority, PLO, whatever, um, govern Gaza basically as a public government of the Israelis, right? Um, and at least they're secular and they're relatively sane and they're not ISIS-like in their barbarity, but I don't know. What other, what other outcome is there, potentially, other than that? Yeah, I, I think it's worth pointing out, um, and it sounds like we have some listeners who claim to understand the situation, but the difference between Hamas and the PA, right? And and like the history of the conflict, like Yasser Arafat was not Hamas. It's a different different thing. And so Gaza and, and the West Bank, the two enclaves of Palestinian population in within the kind of border of Israel are run by different groups, one with an expressed uh, you know, charter to destroy Israel and Hamas, and the other one, the PA, 
and and you actually see some of this in uh you know it's fictional but fauda right like where you the the collaborator on the other side in in the show that is palestinian is the uh, the security chief from the palestinian authority and it's the breakoff groups including hamas um that are the primary antagonists um and so yeah, I, I mean again it's a fictional show although it, it, you, i mean antonio you were the one that brought this up like fauda like there's a lot of truth in a lot of what the plots there the actors themselves yeah. were in these kind of special forces units they've been called yeah, yeah the, well the yeah the creators were in the same Shabbat unit the, the the internal security unit where the you know israelis um again another thing <laughs> speaking of ethnic cleansing jews were ethnically cleansed out of the middle east right they, they were there used to be thriving jewish populations in almost every every country in the east and when israel triumphed in its various wars the, they all got kicked out and one of the greatest historical ironies of history is that literally the the descendants of of, of the people that were ethnically cleansed, the Jews that were kicked out of the Middle East became the agents that were able to actually act like Arabs or like Persians and actually infiltrate those countries and undermine the schemes against Israel. That is one of the, that is indeed one of the world's great enemies. And so, you know, everyone in that show, right, came from that world. In fact, even though the star is supposed to be the child of a, uh, Don Kabilo is the child of an Iraqi Jew, which my driver today was an Iraqi Jew and he was Mizraqi. And he, he looked like Don actually, <laughs> same bald head, same everything, right? Um, so wait, how do we get here? Sorry, I'm a little scatterbrained because I spent the entire day in the sun running around. Um, uh, Dan, you asked a question about... Well, um, I, I was just bringing up the, oh, oh, the, the thing. point yeah, of sorry, the fun thing. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, yeah, no, so is correct, right? In the sense that Gaza, I think the, the third of the, the last season took place in Gaza, right? Which seems kind of like far-fetched because like, what the hell would you be doing in, in Gaza? And again, I mean, and it's understandable, right? It's Americans, like it all bleeds together. Like, you know, Gaza, West Bank, it's very different, right? Again, Gaza literally is like a five kilometer wide strip in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's like the equivalent of like Arizona or something in the United States, right? It's like the far like southwestern reaches of a country versus the West Bank, which is like, I don't know, a third or a half the size of Israel proper as historical cities, right? That go back, you know, forever, like uh, Ramallah. Um, and they... They interleave. East, East Jerusalem is largely Arab, in fact. And like, remember, I was coming back from the protests in, in July. There was traffic on the main highway. And so we cut into the West, again, the West Bank, across what's called the Green Line, which is a historical 1967 border, and just started driving through Arab villages just to, like, to beat traffic, right? Which, by the way, gives you an idea of Israelis are so crazy. Like, they'll literally like, leave what is Israel proper and go into like, a little bit of the Wild West, a little bit just to avoid traffic. But in any case, but you can do that in the West Bank. Like, again, there's, there's an interleaving of cultures there that kind of coexists in the same way that. You know, there's an open line, I'm sure, between the Palestinian Authority and like the proper Israeli government in a way that there is not, okay, between Hamas, between Hamas and Israel. There is not. Gaza is like in a, in a, in its own little world. And then there's the West Bank, right? Um, and they're just very different. And, uh, yeah, and, and I think no, yeah, one of the yeah. most striking things for me when I visited Israel for the first time in 2019 is started in Tel Aviv. I would agree. It feels like Miami, LA with the tech scene, super secular. You know, you can go out as late as you want. Then you go to Jerusalem, which is just completely different vibe. And if you're there on Shabbat, nothing is open. Like there's literally one restaurant for, you know, Westerners. <laughs> um, and the interesting thing, though, is we went to the north. So I think we went to a town in Safed um, and then the area of Nazareth, where, where traditionally Jesus was from. Um, but Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which is in the West Bank. Like, and, and so I think people, you know, like the geography of this very small country is actually pretty important to understand because to your point, the West Bank has a lot of historical significance in terms of, I mean, isn't Jericho in the West Bank, which like obviously is a super old city. Um, One of the oldest cities the in the world. The thing is we yeah. were in Jordan before that. Yeah. Right. We were in Jordan before that. And we went to this really old uh, Byzantine church that is on the top of kind of a mountain and you can see out across right because the jordan river and you can see the the entire west bank and, and like maybe the, the you know little bit of jerusalem but you you kind of realize like this is the thing that everyone's fighting over is 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 this area but it is there is a lot of historical significance there relative to gaza which obviously there have been people in gaza for how long whatever but in terms of the the holy land that is not the thing that people have been fighting over Gaza is this weird thing they got in, what, 67 from the Egyptians and, right. and they kind of never gave it up. Or I don't know if they got it in 67 or 73. I think it's 67. Gaza, you know, 
in the Netflix series known as the Bible, there's no episodes filmed in Gaza. Let's put it that way. <laughs> They're all filmed uh, mostly in the West Bank. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a strange situation. Israel is such a bizarre country, magical, but also very, very weird, deeply weird. But I think and and any uh, read on what's happening in the north? Because I, I know that's also been this yeah. kind of, you know, everyone's focused on Gaza because that's where the terrorist attack happened. But the the scary thing in my mind is you have Hezbollah, which has probably even more resources than rockets and terrible things that can kind of rain down in Israel. And it feels like every day, just watching the the Twitter open source intelligence, it's like there were like six IDF soldiers dead from uh, exchange Today, there. Think, yeah. And, and yeah. it feels like things are starting to escalate quite a bit on, on the, the border with Lebanon. Yeah, yeah. so the, the northern border of uh, Israel, again, just to delineate the risk board here a little bit, is with Lebanon, but obviously Hezbollah is sort of a, a proxy client uh, organization from Iran. And uh, they have a whole you know, militia group thing up there and they fire rockets into the northern cities. And um, yeah, they're starting to evacuate cities up there for reasons of rocket attacks and there's exchanging gunfire back and forth. And obviously, you know, the fear is for those who think that everything is World War III is that Iran will come into the war on the side of his blood and then Israel will be fighting a two-front war. Um, and depending who you believe, Biden presumably stayed Bibi's hand and kept him from engaging a preemptive attack on the North. Or, or so it was semi-reliably tweeted. Um, yeah, no, there's stuff going up, up North as well. Um, but it, you know, it's also not the first time Israel fought a two-front war. I mean, the Yom War was a two-front war. War of Independence was a five-front war, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, yeah. No, it's funny, like talking to the Israelis, it's just, it's strange because like, you know, I mean, this place feels like the United States. It's like very American. I'm like in your face and they yell the U.S. And it's, I mean, it's also deeply not, not American, but in, in, in some regards, it does feel very American. But like, I think it's, uh, Israel, it's so much its own vibe. I think they're, they're not totally self-aware of how they fit into like the Western intellectual framework. I think that I also don't quite understand how, how, you know, call it woke or whatever, progressive or whatever the West has become. And they're a little bit like mystified. How is it that American leftists aren't like aligned with the Israeli left, right? Which just a level set to use PM talk here, right? Like the Israeli left is like, yeah, yeah, it's all crunchy, hippy dippy kibbutz. But the moment the air raid sirens go on, they're the most vicious warriors in Israel, like the, the original, you know, the class that fought, that, at least in the, in the mind and in reality too, you know, the class that fought the 67 war and the Yom Kippur war were the, were the kibbutz and kin, like the guys from the kibbutz who were the, the tough farmers who settled the land and then, you know, took up a rifle and, you know, fought against the invading Arabs, right? That is kind of the mystique. And, and those guys, just to be clear, were total socialists, total secular socialists, right? Like the Mapai, which was the early the labor government that ran every government until they until they fumbled the Yom Kippur War. Um, by the way, in Israel, wars have a way of doing that. If you fumble the war, you lose the next election. Right? So we'll see. Bibi's going to probably lose an election. But in any case, the Israeli left is super crunchy, hippy-dippy. Like, like I said, if in the U.S., you go move to Portland or some shit, and here you move to a kibbutz and you vote left-wing, but you still serve in the army, by the way. <laughs> like all these kibbutz. Sami Lamak, by the way, fended off the attacks because they all have security personnel. So they're not peace next. Um, they don't understand how is it that, that American or the Western left aligns with the Palestinians who, seeing from what they did on, as they call it here, literally Black Sabbath, or like Black Saturday is the name for it, by the way, which is the, the day of the attack, because the Arab world likes attacking on Jewish holidays for the sense of the element of surprise. Um, you know, how can you reconcile, how can they take the side of what seems to be a genocidal theocratic death cult, which Hamas kind of is? Right? How can they take the side of it? So you have to explain, you know, this and that, but they don't quite get it, right? And I think, um, I don't know. I, I mean, this do, is why- Do they I enjoy being like... considered white for the purposes of American <laughs> political, uh, Dude, you know, Israelis are so you know, not sorry, white. They're, they're the least white people you've ever met. <laughs> to be white. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's that, that's <laughs> the crazy thing is you go to Israel and it's like the the kind of like- it's not white. How different <laughs> everyone looks despite being, yeah. And, and, and so to be basically classified as white in the US because white is bad, and right. somehow Hamas gets labeled as brown, and so therefore yeah. is the oppressed group. Um, right. And if, by the way, if you, if, you, if you think Hamas is brown, you've never met a Levantine Arab. <laughs> There's white as a driven snow. But in any case, not that it matters. But I'm just, it's, not the, it's not the image they have in their heads of uh, what an Arab looks like.
Yeah, I mean, part of me, again, you know, we've discussed Tom Holland and Christianity and Judaism and all that in here. I think one of the, you know, the AGM bingo card has some mention of Judaism or something. But it is, it is, it is strange when your moral and theological playbook is the Old Testament, right, from the Christian perspective. It does not include the gospel at all, right? Like, it just, it's different. It's, it's a, a different world. It's, uh, it's, you know, it has a lot of elements of Christianity, right, of equal dignity and all that stuff, but a lot of it's a little bit Bronze Age, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, in the, in the Bible, right, I quoted one of the passages, there was this tribe called the Amalekites who attacked the, uh, the, the biblical Hebrews' rear when they were coming from Egypt. And then there, there's an actual mitzvah to remember Amalek, which is considered to be like the great enemy of the Jewish people, which passes from generation to generation. The Amalekites get wiped out in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> um, and so there's a little bit of that too, right, in the, in the Jewish mentality. And I think broadly speaking, I mean, getting beyond you know, the, the, the God of wrath in the, in the Bible, a lot about Israeli culture, even, even people firmly on the left, to be clear, like we're not talking like the hard right wingers. We're, we're talking sec secular Israeli left is just uh, like Naftali Bennett, who was born in America, made millions as a software entrepreneur and was the PM before uh, Bibi. You know, he tweeted a thing and it was um, a couple because everyone mobilized, right? So all the plans got canceled. Like all your family life events are like now canceled. A couple got married on an army base. And I, I tweeted about it. It's like, if, if you didn't know it, Israel looks like a fascist military dictatorship. It's like the most militarized society you've ever seen, right? Like everybody's in the army, guns everywhere. It just, it feels very different. And so they have their wedding at the army base. The guy literally a rifle slung around his neck because people just commonly carry rifles around. It's, it's there in the service. And, and then another, I forget who tweeted it. Somebody tweeted a thing and it's like, again, similar life event. His son was having a bar mitzvah, which is the, the Jewish coming of age. And so they brought the Marbitza to the army base. And so there is the little 12-year-old kid, right, or 13 or whatever, and he's surrounded by guys in uniform. They bring out the Torah, oh my God, the holy book. They all start singing and dancing. Everyone's armed. Again, seen from the American perspective, it looks insane, right? It looks like, who the fuck are these religious wackos who are armed to the fucking teeth and are like all organized into this army? But again, it's, it's, it's not that. Like the vibe isn't like this hyper-violent thing, but it is the case that it's a conscript army and this is just what life is like here, right? And um, I think Israelis don't understand how that comes across and how it comes across as not great from the sort of default Western view right now. Um, and it's bizarre because, again, like, well, what do you mean, Antonio? How does that come across compared to all the horrible videos that came out of you know, Hamas killing civilians? How does that look? It looks terrible. But it, again, it's, there's definitely a double standard applied to Israel in a way that the same moral judgments that are applied to Israel are not applied to other governments in the region. It's obviously unfair, but that's the reality of it. I think. Um, Dare, dare one might say anti-Semitic. I hate using that term because I, but yeah. No, no, yeah. I, 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 I don't like it either. But like, I, I just feel like it's on, they're they're held to some crazy standard that no one else would hold any other country to. Certainly not other countries in the region, which they clearly don't hold it to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, I mean, and then you have also the 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 like LGBTQ plus whatever for uh, Palestine. It's like, do you know what they do to people in, 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 you know, Gaza that, 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 reminds, that, that reminds me of one of the like, saltiest, that reminds me of one of the saltiest jokes that I heard in. I can't repeat even on MOC, but uh, yeah, it was, it's, yes, it's, um, it's definitely, um, right. But, 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 but the reality is like, uh, to, you know, to cite the Christian thing of forgive them so they know not what they do, like they're playing it as like an intellectual game and as virtue signaling. They don't really understand what it would mean to have Gaza take over you know, San Francisco and how, <laughs> you know, guess what? I think the pride parade is canceled among other things. Um, they don't, they don't really perceive it as a reality because they don't fear. They don't, they don't have the fear in their own skin. They don't really know what that is to be where, Oh my God, wait, you mean I can't, I can't just call the HR department. It's like, uh, I don't think so, bro. I'm just like, this is, like, this is the whole, you're at the fringes of like your order giving way to another order that doesn't understand or doesn't agree with even your most basic values. Um, but yeah, I, I think again, you know, as someone who kind of converted to Judaism and came more partially for that reason, as someone who you know was raised Catholic and now sees from the other side, there's definitely there's definitely this vibe. It's almost like if you read the uh, the letters of Paul in the Gospels, right? Which, for those who aren't familiar, you know, Paul's the guy. He's the brilliant product manager who turned what was this weird Jewish messianic cult into what we now know as Christianity, right? So he basically took Judaism, which was this very niche products like Linux say, <laughs> like very powerful, but super hard to use. And then he turned it into like Mac OS 10, right? And then sold it to like half the world, right? 
Um, and he, you know, in, in, in the letters, he, he sits there and he kind of like lectures the Jews for not giving up their old traditions and accepting this beautiful new covenant. And a lot of the West lecturing Israel feels like that. Like, wait, how can you not be adopting this brilliant new, you know, millenarian philosophy of this new kingdom of God on earth that we're all bringing, this universalist vision of how everything should run. And I think, um, I think the reason why Israel is an outcast among nation states is the same reason the Jew was an outcast among European peoples for the last 2000 years, um, which is their, their sort of stiff-necked refusal to abandon their traditions and their peoplehood and their, their equally stiff-necked refusal to sort of adopt the universalist millenarian crusade as embodied in the gospels and, and it's, and it's secular descendants like wokeness and all that and social justice and all the rest of it. They just, they refuse to go along with that. They're, they're not accepting universalism. They're, they're comfortable in their particularism and they won't abandon it. Even the Israeli left. And that, that fundamentally is the problem, right? I think. And that's, that's an unbridgeable divide. Antonio, we, we've spent some time on this podcast talking to Liel um, and, and Alana and Jacob and, and some other tablet folks about kind of the intra civil war among, among Israelis, you know, the, the one, the, 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 the two thirds of the country that wants Israel to be sort of a Jewish state and the, and the one third that just wants it to be a state for Jews, i.e., you know, New York with, with some, with some Judaism. Um, yeah. and, but how the one third kind of is, is, you know, controls the institutions or, you know, they're the more creative class, the entrepreneurial class, uh, more elite class. Um, how, how does that civil war, um, or, you know, sort of metaphorical war, how, how does that, um, evolve, um, given what's, how does that think it's gone? Gone. So what, what happens now? What, what is sort of is intra country Israeli sentiment? Yeah, it's gone. I mean, it's funny. There's so many strangely beautiful things about Israeli society. <laughs> it's very unlike a Western society in many ways, and it doesn't realize it. But one way, again, there, you know, we had a, a very divided nation, similar to the red, I mean, at a very high level way, very similar to the red blue divide in the United States, right? And that everyone was politically each other's threats and trying to use the institutions of the state to advocate their particular vision of the world, particularly this divide between Jewish states, state of Jews, et cetera. Um, but again, like literally that instantly flipped a lot of the organizations that are now helping out with the war effort in ways that are perceived because the, the government failed. Like what, you know, I've got the, the two bulletproof vests that, that I, that I took down South, like I'm going to donate them. Why do I have to be importing ballistic armor to the most militarized country in the world, which has a super high fraction of its GDP dedicated to the military? Like why, do, why do we need to do this? And a lot of American Jews bought all sorts of supplies, drove them down. Like what, why does the, why does the civil society, which is very strong in Israel, have to fill in for the gap in the government? If you're on the left, you'll blame Bibi for it. Like, this guy's a total fuck up. Why, why didn't you do what you should do? Um, you know, unfortunately, in, in, this whole, in this whole little epic of mine, I haven't talked to too many people on the right. It's mostly people on the left. Um, but yeah, they, they blame it on Bibi. But like, for now, it's like, we'll deal with that later. For now, the war is still going on and we'll deal with it later. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what that divide, I, I don't think I don't think the divide is going away. That, that divide is going to stay. It's going to be real. Uh, like, I, I read this piece in Tablet, right? There's a, there's a demographic shift happening. Israel is moving to the right and more religious over time. And that's just, unless the trend line changes by a lot, that's going to be the future. And uh, that's still going to be, uh, you know, another unbridgeable divide <laughs> between those who really see it as a Jewish state and those who see it as a nation state that happens to have mostly Jews. Should Israel consider being more ambitious here or, or given the unique opportunity it, it has to make a, like a significant move? Or is it, there just no chance of, of, of that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I think, what do I see happening? I see the government spending billions of dollars to build even higher fences, mine everything, literally have like a one kilometer, two kilometer long standoff area from the fence. Um, if you go to the West Bank, they've got, well, and Dan, who went to Bethlehem, will remember the 30 foot concrete walls that you saw that are like the most uncrossable things you've ever seen in your entire life, but are very expensive to build. I imagine you're going to see a lot more of that because what there is in the Gaza fence is literally a fence, but obviously not that hard to get through. So I imagine they're going to mine it more, more security, more, more troops stationed down there. I mean, one of the criticisms is, oh, we're so focused. I mean, this is the anti-BB, anti-religious anti criticism. Oh, we spent so much time protecting the settlers in the West Bank that we totally forgot about that. I don't know if that's true or not. That's like, that's like one of the talking points. That like, oh yeah, we focus so much on the West Bank because of these crazy religious Zionists who are hyper-fiction in the West Bank, or Judea, Samaria, as they call it, um, that we, we, we let our eye off the ball and got I don't know if that's actually true, but that's, that's kind of the vibe. And the reaction to that would be spending more money on, on Gaza security. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't know. Like I, I, you know, I was at the Barry, this kibbutz that again was sort of you know, decimated by, by terrorism. 
and they they got the 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 factory that which is where they make most of their money up again in a week literally the, you know the week happened like the bodies are still being identified they're being identified now they're, they're still being identified and they got the the factory running again right and so they clearly want to invest in that region again how many people are actually going to move back i don't know because again that was all based on the compact where like the government will protect us and even though there are barbarians or what are perceived to be barbarians you know two kilometers that way we're 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 safe we're okay i can let my kids run around and whatever i agree with antonio the the only thing that israel has as an option is increase the security so what do i actually think probably happens the israelis were actually the first ones to develop drones for military use it's actually in that book, Rise and Kill First, which I always talk about. They talk about how they, they, they wanted kind of eyes in the sky and the ability. And that's actually where the Americans first saw the operational capabilities of using drones, right? So the Israelis were the first ones to use that in, in war zone. And then obviously the, the war in Iraq, the, the American and Afghanistan, the Americans really perfected it. And now we're at a point where drones are so cheap that you have the, the poor uh, terrorists being able to use them. But if you look at Anduril, their their first product was selling to the U.S. border and putting kind of drones and, and remote towers. And I would imagine that is going to be a huge boom industry where, hey, we're going to do increased security on the border, but then we're going to do even more automation, drones, early warning systems. Um, and yeah, and then and I do think that they're probably going to try to eliminate as much of Hamas as they can, although you'll probably just have something come up in its place, right? Like you, you never remove that hatred. Yeah, look, I mean, the, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, <laughs> the just move the Palestinians out, like that doesn't even register in the leftist mind. Like, again, like Biden posted about the two-state solution as if it's like a real thing. I, I mean, the thought... <laughs> yeah. it, it was the Palestinians who rejected it. Like, <laughs> that's the thing. I mean, that is historically true, but... Yasser Arafat said no at Camp David. But well, like, I mean, it's, so, yeah. it's never been actually about a two-state solution. Right. I mean, that, that, and that's, that's the part that I think Western leftists can't accept, that it's about the destruction of the state of Israel. <laughs> and they're not going to really be satisfied until that's the case. Um, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. So here we are. I mean, it's just, it's this unstoppable force meets an immovable object and uh, forever. I just, I don't think, I don't think there's, a, there's, there's not a happy ending here, right? There's just more of the same in various forms and, and, and more tragedy, but also, you know, more people getting married and more but but mitzvahs and more uh the, one of the videos that uh, israeli shared soon after the tragedy is a soldier who was watching his son's bris the circumcision eight days after they're born on his phone because they call it the reserve duty right so you see the you know the sprouts of life after the sort of pageant of death that was the attacks and life goes on and it's an imperfect reality um i think i've, I've quoted this author more than once and maybe it's a good thing to wrap on uh, dana horn whose book uh, people love dead, dead jews i think is a brilliant book about how the christian world kind of you know frames the Jewish problem, so to speak, of, of how Jews exist in the majority Christian world. And uh, a lot of what you mentioned, right, I think is, is brilliant from a sort of literary point of view is how the Christian narrative is so different than the Jewish narrative, right? If you look, how does the, how does the Christian Bible literally end? It, it literally ends in the book of Revelation in which the apocalypse happens and, and then Christ returns and, and then it's, it's utopia, right? And whether that be the utopia of communism or the utopia of social justice, there's always some like beautiful little happy ending with a bow on it in every sort of Christian narrative. How does the how does the Hebrew Bible end? Well, Moses sees the promised land and then does a little bit of uh, you know writes his will, gives a little bit of territory here, and then he dies, and that's it. And you don't even know the end. This whole saga you follow along, and there is no fixed ending. The other, the other example I would, I would cite, a little bit less literary than the end of the respective Bibles, um, is um, you know that movie Munich about the wrath of God thing that Spielberg made about uh, the wrath of God was a thing when the the terrorism at the Munich Olympics, they actually went off and tried to and killed most of the terrorists who actually did it. By the way, there's a, the Wrath of God Part 2 is coming, in which their the Shabak, it's been reliably leaked that they're forming a team to actually kill every terrorist participation in, in the activities. And so, like, you're looking at the faces and they're going to, like, hunt them down one after another. Although, of course, now it's hundreds of people, it's not dozens of people. Um, but in any case, Movie Munich was about the Wrath of God V1, in which they, you know, it's been reported now through many channels that they actually hired a team and they, or no, they, organized team and they kill those people. And, and yeah, at the end of Munich, which is a very Spielberg take on the whole thing, you've got um, Eric Bana, who plays the leader of the... You've seen Munich, right, Dan? You like the Wrath of God thing. Of course you've watched it. So at the, at the end, you've got to see oh, yeah, Eric yeah, Bana. I mean, I... I, I yeah. yeah. You see, you have Eric Bana, who led the team, and is having moral qualms about it because he spent years of his life away from his family engaging in this act of revenge that he starts to question by the end of it. And you've got, uh, what's his name, uh, Jeffrey Rush playing his, like, Mossad handler, who's, like, the hard-bitten... Our nose, Mossad man, right? I'm having a debate in Brooklyn Heights with a recreated 
uh, World Trade Center behind them. So obviously it's in the context of that. This movie came out, I guess, in the, in the mid-aughts, late-aughts. Um, and Eric Bana says, what have we done with all this killing? Everyone we killed will just be replaced by worse. And then Jeffrey Rush playing the, the hard massage man just responds, well, I cut my nails, but I know they'll grow back. <laughs> That's his response to it. Three and so the, I think the Israeli answer is just going to be, well, we're going to keep on cutting the Hamas nails because <laughs> we know they're going to go back. And there is a happy ending. I think that's the, that's the likely outcome. Yeah. I, I, again, no, no horse in the race myself, but looking at the situation, I don't think anyone who thinks that there is a solution is, in my view, naive. It is, this is the way this is going to be. And the best you can get is better better security on borders so that you don't have these atrocities but it there's going to be no fundamental change at all yeah that's right well on that uh on on you know somber note should we uh should, should, should we wrap yeah yeah i mean i, I what are we going to try to sell them a christian end to this and, and say everyone <laughs> comes happy ever after no i mean it's just like this is this is hard shit. Don't like, worry, man. Is... Look, the Gazans just have to watch enough Netflix and then become little consumers. Gaza City can become a startup pod and they're going to have HR departments too. Don't worry. That's going to happen in no time. That's exactly well, what that, was, that was Noah's, you know, just make them rich so that they're fat and happy and then they won't want to commit atrocities. And it's like, of course. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's just endless violence forever? <laughs> that's human nature. That, that That's the thing. It's, it's, it's so... Um, utopian and christian to assume that you will eradicate all evil and violence from the world. At, at what point do you do, like what would need to be true for israel to move people out of Palestine? like to just say hey th this is never gonna happen again this can't they're happen not do that. because they are moral right as much as the people on social media would want to say that they, they are moral right they aren't trying to blow up hospitals and they aren't trying to kill innocent civilians they're doing munition knocks like it, it, are there innocent people getting killed in 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 Gaza? Yes, that's awful. But but the Israelis aren't trying to do that. That is not the expressed uh, objective. Hamas did do that. That was their objective. Yeah. And they would have done it even right. more if they had had the ability to. If there's a button tomorrow that someone in Hamas can press and kill two million Israelis, they do it in a heartbeat. Yeah, right. The Israelis right. have that capability right now, and they don't do. That. Right. I mean, that's why I tweeted. Right. You're dealing with the people who would annihilate another people if they could, but they can't. And you've got that other people who could annihilate that first people, but they don't. <laughs> and that, that in fact, is the problem. Because if, we if, if, if Israel is all that it's being cracked up to be by these Western left, they would have annihilated the Palestinians. But they don't. Actually, they don't. Because they don't want to. That's the reality of it. Right. And it's a Mont Bailey where basically what happens is, is if you criticize Hamas, then people step back and say, hey, I'm pro-Palestinian. And it's like, that, that wasn't the argument. It's like, there's a... There's a terrorist group that runs the Gaza Strip. What do you do? How do you do? You just let them continue to shoot rockets and commit atrocities every every decade or so, or do you eradicate them and and do your best to minimize civilian casualties? Where you 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 know give people weeks to migrate south, right? And it's like obviously the terrorists are moving south too. Like they're not they're not being like oh okay I guess we'll just sit here in the tunnels in the north. There are no easy solutions here. Like there are things in life that just don't have easy solutions. And I think that that like, that's what I think the average American educated person doesn't like that idea, right? Okay. The average Silicon exactly. Valley person doesn't like that idea because they feel like they can change everything. And I think that you have to get to a point that there's evil in the world and you are never going to root it all out. Like no matter how good your you know, degree from Harvard and, and like way of thinking about the world, like you just can't will that out of, out of existence. And actually arguably the, the best way to get rid of that evil is to hit it with like 10 X the force, right? Cause evil understands force. It doesn't understand, uh, whatever, you know, nonviolent communication you got taught to try to explain why they shouldn't do things that they should do for the, for the record, MOZ had someone on the ground on this conflict versus <laughs> sitting at home in the US just sharing opinions. Yeah, we got to get in the game That's here at the moment of Zen. Reality. <laughs> I'm the part of MOZ that yeah. still thinks reality matters and that doesn't actually take Twitter to be reality. So yeah, that's right. But I just realized I'm so brown. I'm like so fucking tan. I'm like, I've changed like four shades just from being here. I look like a Mizrahi Jew. Anyhow. You go to Israel, you're, you're less white, right? Like, uh, so. Yeah, exactly. Less white, the chest is hairier. Um, I start speaking, no, my I start, yeah, exactly. I start acting more Israeli. All right. All right. See you guys. Awesome.
All right, take care. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together. 